as we come to you right now, I do want to thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be here this evening, for the opportunity to study your word. And Father, I thank you for those who are faithfully participating in this journey through the book of Revelation. Father, I also want to thank you for those who are joining us for the first time tonight, that as we do a bit of review, that you'll just be able to catch them right up and get in the flow of what we're doing. Father, I also want to thank you for those who are studying the Word with us via the Internet and the podcast, and just pray you bless them and use them and work in their lives in a mighty way. And so, Father, we've met here tonight to worship you, to study your Word, and to see how the Word can impact our lives that we might be able to share with others. For it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Now, as you notice there on the front page of your outline, I do want us to do a little bit of review of where we have been. We have traveled through quite a bit of literature, and so it's always good to review the material that we have covered. And also, we do have some folks who are joining us for the first time tonight, and for so for their sake and for all of us, I want to review a little bit of where we have been and where we're going. Notice, when we began our study, one of the first things we noticed in our first night together was the outline of the book of Revelation found in Revelation chapter 119, where John is told to write the things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Now, the things that John saw, of course, were Jesus Christ in his full manifestation and glory, and that's why this book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it's all about him. He's the central focus, and John wrote about how he saw Jesus revealed in chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3, we studied through the seven churches of Asia Minor. In part 2 then, chapters 2 and 3 deal with the things which are. The things which are deal with things that are present tense reality in those seven churches. Now a lot of times people will want to skim through and skim past and even skim over the study of chapter 2 and 3 over these seven churches wanting to get to the more meatier parts of the book. And let's get into the real big stuff. But I hope you have seen in our study that a faithful understanding and a clear understanding of chapters 2 and 3 and all those signs and symbols and word pictures in those two chapters, those are key to understanding the rest of the book. And so it's important that we study through those, and that's why we took time to do that. And then we saw the things which will take place after this. Now, as we looked into our outline at Revelation 119 and compared that to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, we found this little key phrase, meta tauta, this little phrase that's going to happen many times throughout our book. And what we found is that little phrase is a key marker phrase to help us to know about a shift in focus. In Revelation 119 and compared to Revelation 4, chapter 1, Jesus said, and what John is caused to understand is, these are the things which will take place after this. After this meaning after the church is taken out in what we know as the rapture. And in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, we find that these are the things then that are revealed. And several times throughout the book of Revelation then, we're going to find this little phrase. Now as John was taken up into heaven, he saw a door, a door open in heaven. And he was caused to come up there. And many people think of that and look at that. And I agree with them that that that's a a representation of how the Lord's going to call us up into heaven. And so John was called up into heaven to see these things and to experience these things in a mighty way. 
And tonight in our study, we're going to see John really involved dynamically in this revelation, how he's asked to be a part of all this, and so it's a, a unique situation tonight. And then as he's there, he sees this throne and one sitting on the throne, and and we see all kind of worship going on. And as he continues to focus on the one sitting on the throne, he also sees 24 lesser thrones. And by looking at 14 pieces of evidence, we determine that those 24 lesser thrones are represent, they represent the church in heaven and all those different descriptions that are shared there. Next, John saw these four living creatures standing around the throne. And we determined that those four living creatures are unique creations of God, created angels having similarities to the cherubim and the seraphim angels, but they are unique creations of God, and they are there actually as visible representations and visible presentations of the characteristics and the attributes of God. And they are there around the throne ready at any time, at any moment to do the will of God without fail. And as we continued to study, as we continued on in our work together, we found that John, as he continues to focus on the one sitting on the throne, he's caused to focus on the right hand of the one sitting on the throne And in his right hand is this scroll sealed with seven seals. And this angel, a mighty angel, one of many that's that's spoken of and written about in the book of Revelation, this mighty angel sends out this reverberating call throughout the halls of heaven, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals? And no one stepped up as being able, having the authority to open up this seal and this scroll. Well, as a result of that, then John began to weep, weep almost uncontrollably because he wanted to see the contents of this scroll. He noticed it was written on the inside and on the back, and so he desperately wanted to know the contents of this scroll. And just about the time that all hope is lost and that there's nobody going to be able to open up this scroll, up steps the lion, the tribe of Judah, and the word comes to John that the the lion has prevailed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He has the power and the authority to open up the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And what we have been doing now is opening up those seals prophetically, looking at things that are going to happen in the future, and we've been looking at them one at a time. And you see those listed there in your study guide. When we opened up seal number one, we saw a white horse. And that white horse represents a time of peace. And we said there's going to be a time of peace on the earth, and then we found, secondly, a red horse, and that red horse symbolized a time of war, a time where peace is going to be taken from the earth and people are actually going to assassinate each other, kill each other in ways, in just in record numbers, in in such a a dramatic, sad kind of situation. That's the kind of activity that's going to be going on in the world at that time. Thirdly, we saw this black horse, and this black horse symbolizes famine conditions. And what we found is during the seal, the third seal, as it's opened, there is going to be a famine across our land so bad that people will work all day just for one meal or for food enough for one day. And then we find seal number four and this pale horse. Now, this pale horse was a yucky kind of yellowish-green kind of color. Many times we get the idea of the pale horse actually from a Clint Eastwood movie called Pale Rider. 
And a lot of times it's strange, isn't it, how we get our theology from TV? The the Pale Rider movie doesn't really give a clear picture of the horse. It's actually kind of a greenish, yellowish, kind of deadly kind of color. That seal in that horse represents a time of death when one-fourth of the people on the planet will die in a short period of time. Seal number five represents the slain remnant. Those folks who actually gave their lives to Christ at some point during the tribulation period and after giving their lives to Christ are also sadly, we might even say mercifully, martyred and they find themselves in heaven and they're calling out to God saying, God, how long will it be before you avenge our blood and judge those who, who did this? And they did not want their deaths to be in vain and so the Lord told them just to wait a little while longer. And then we found seal number six in this great earthquake that's going to happen on the earth and it symbolizes total anarchy. And as the seventh, excuse me, as the sixth seal was open, our whole solar system and everything we think about of, of life is thrown into chaos. And we read about that and studied about that. And then we came to the first of what will be several parenthetical sections throughout the book of Revelation. We found this in Revelation chapter 7. And what we found in that is these parenthetical sections are rest periods for John. They are periods, they, they are, it's material that tells us greater detail that uh, was not disclosed earlier. And also it's, uh, it's material that does not fit chronologically with other material before and after. And so they are these, these little interest sections, human interests and, and, and specific details that are added, and we're going to see a couple of those even yet again tonight. Now, as we continued on in our study and we opened up that seventh seal, we found that there was silence in heaven for about the space of half an hour. Now, as we came to that moment then of silence in heaven, a, a lot of idea is what, what does that, why, why do we have this silence in heaven? Probably the best way to understand that is the inhabitants of heaven are beginning to understand what is about to happen on the earth and the Holocaust that's about to transpire and they're just quiet about what's getting ready to happen. Listen to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 33.11 that we're going to get to new material. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, if you think God's having a big time and going to have a big time or the inhabitants of heaven are going to have a big time, when all this holocaust happens on earth, that's not the truth. Listen to what he says. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And so God's call is, God's desire is that there not be any that would perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish off the face of this earth. He wants everyone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. John's writing in 1 John tells us that Jesus is the propitiation, the covering for all of our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so God wants people to be saved and he takes no pleasure in the death of those who refuse. But for those who reject and reject and reject Christ and they will not be saved, their end is of their own making in that sense. And so your friends and loved ones that have not given their lives to Christ, just continue to pray for them. And just like Jeff shared this morning in his testimony, even when it seems like you have family members and there's no hope and you might just kind of start giving up on them, uh, Jeff Siegel would tell you, 
there's still an opportunity. They can be saved. So just keep praying for them. Now that takes us to new material and to Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, and the contents of the seventh seal. Notice, let's begin at verse 1 and read down to verse 2, Revelation chapter 8. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Notice then, the trumpets are given. Now with this, then we are beginning to see the seven trumpets, and they are about to sound. Now as we look at this, we have just opened the seventh seal, but immediately upon opening of the seventh seal, these seven trumpets now are given. And so what we need to see, and we've shared this early on in our study, look at these seven trumpets as not just following the seventh seal, but actually encased in the seventh seal. And as a result of the seventh seal open, now we get a chance to see these seven trumpets, and they're going to happen in pretty much a rapid su succession. Now as we look at these trumpets, we need to ask and find out What's the significance of trumpets? Trumpets are used in many different ways. They're used to declare war, to assemble people. Uh, they're even used in our day. Trumpets are a great way to get people's attention. They announce the arrival of the king. They get people's attention before the delivery of a proclamation. They are used to announce a feast and a fast. They pronounce judgment. And so there are many different ways why and how trumpets are used and the context of how what happens at the sounding of that trumpet kind of tells you why that trumpet was used in that particular time. And so the trumpets are given. Secondly, then we have this dramatic introduction. As the trumpets are given to these seven angels, look at verse 3, and we have this dramatic introduction. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now this golden censer, this censer or fire pan we could call it, you can kind of get a picture in your mind. It was made of gold, had a long handle, and here's what its use was. Its use was was to go out, outside the tabernacle, to the golden altar, this, this tremendous altar, and they would gather up coals off that altar and bring them inside the tabernacle and put them on the incense altar representing the prayers of the saints. And so this angel does that. And notice what we have here, verse 4, And the smoke of the incense of the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Now quite possibly these prayers that are going up and this, this prayer going up and this incense and this smoke going up is a representative or a picture of the fact that these prayers are being accepted by God. And it probably is the prayers of the saints back there in Revelation chapter 6 where they, they cried out and they prayed to God, God, how long will it be before you avenge our blood and judge those who killed us? And so they, their, their prayers are going up. Look on at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there were noises thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Here we have judgment, wrath, beginning to be poured out on the earth. We know that these symbols and signs listed here are indicative and speak of judgment, wrath from God. Now notice what we have here as we think about these trumpets. I want us to notice, and, and I want to just kind of throw this out and lay it on the table, 
and we're going to come back to it at the end of our study tonight. But I want you to think about and consider the difference between these seven trumpets that are about to sound and the trumpet of God that is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Many times people want to say that these are the same and that the trumpet of God in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 is the seventh of these seven trumpets. And we're going to share with you a little bit of truth about that as we wrap that up. But these trumpets are trumpets given to these angels to sound. Now the grammar here, the construction of the sentence would tell us that these these trumpets were given from God to these angels to sound forth and they're carrying out His will. Notice then the sounding of the seven trumpets and beginning at verse 7. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed mingled with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Now in each one of these trumpets there is judgment. Judgment and, and focus primarily on man but on this first trumpet it is a judgment upon vegetation. As we think about, notice what it's saying there. The first angel sounded hail followed by with fire mingled with blood that were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. What we have here is a promise and a fulfillment even that Joel talked about in Joel 2, 30 and 31, if you want to jot that one down. He says, I will show wonders in heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be darkened, shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so we know that with the sounding of these trumpets, we're getting closer and closer to the end, of the end of the tribulation period when Jesus will come back and begin to set up his 1,000 1000 year millennial reign upon the earth. Now the judgment here is upon vegetation, it's upon man, and also directly upon vegetation. And really it kind of focuses on those who worship plant life, those who worship the creation rather than the creator. And those who are tree huggers, those who are the, the, the greenest activists, those who are just, they worship, they almost worship the planet. And, and we could probably even take worship out of that because for many people that is their God. And they see themselves, they have proclaimed themselves as protectors of the earth. And of course we need to be good citizens. We need to be good and responsible individuals. But what we're going to see here is all their efforts are going to be fruitless when God decides to do something different and a third of plant life in that moment will be consumed and be destroyed. Now as we travel through these trumpets, we're going to see this one-third several times. And so a good question would be, why one-third? It's a message to tell us that even though God's judgment is severe, it is not full and complete. There is more to come. There is going to be more wrath and more judgment. So he does this in partial, in partial payments, you might say. But there's going to come a time at the end of our study where his wrath will be poured out without mixture, is how the word is going to say it there. And, and we'll get to that eventually in our time together. Let's notice the second trumpet here. As we think of trumpet number two, look at verses eight and nine. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and the third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Here we have in the second trumpet God's judgment on man and the judgment on sea life. Now, 
we begin to think about what does God have against whales and porpoises and people. It's not that. Here we have another indication how it's a judgment upon man, just like in the judging of the one-third of vegetation. I mean, how many people, how many farmers and, and people that are out planting and they just arrogantly expect plants to happen, never thank God, never pray to God, never seek God's blessing, and they're just expecting things to happen. Likewise in this, how many people are taking their tremendous profits from the sea, harvesting sea life or profit, and then never pause to think and thank God. The people that are alive on the earth at this time are people that are not worshiping God. They are not serving God. And what they're seeing here is that if they if they don't follow God, they're actually going to be the recipients of some of His wrath and some of His judgment. Notice also verses 10 and 11 and the third trumpet, which is a, a judgment on fresh water sources. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Now this word Wormwood is actually found seven other times in our Bible, and it is used to speak of bitterness, bitter water. And what we see here is how God is actually going to use something like a meteor, this burning torch, as it hits the hits the water, it's actually going to contaminate a third of the water and people will actually die as a result of that. And here again, a judgment on man. How many of us, I mean, I've got a bottle of good, clear, clean water here, and how many of us, how many people on earth at that time are going to even pause to ever thank God for just the fresh water that He gives them to drink each and every day? Trumpet number four is God's judgment on man and actually focusing on the calendar, on weather patterns, and things such as that. Look at verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Now just imagine this for a moment. If everything about our sun and moon and stars and the light that they reflect or that they give out to us if a one-third of that was all of a sudden missing and no more. Things would be radically different. And so we're going to see this judgment by God upon this way. Here, another application here is in John chapter 3, Jesus talked about and John records that one of the reasons why darkness is because men love darkness rather than the light. And since they love darkness so much, God is actually going to give the world and those who dwell on the earth at that time. Remember, church is out of here, and so we're gone. But those who dwell on the earth, and we're going to see that phrase several times, he's going to give them darkness. You want darkness, and darkness is what you're going to get. Look at verse uh, 13. And I looked, and I heard another angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now the idea of woe here is simply a, a call to attention. It's kind of like another interlude here and, a, and another dramatic announcement within this dramatic announcement to tell us and tell the people that are alive at that time and to tell the inhabitants of heaven what you have seen is bad. What you've experienced in, in trumpets one through four is bad but they're nothing compared to what's going to happen in trumpets 5, 6, and 7. And so that's 
that's a message of things coming up. Trumpet number five then is woe number one and a judgment on created beings. Look at chapter nine, verse one. Now let's read down to verse six. Then the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Let's pause right there and talk about this a little bit. Notice what we have here, this star fallen from heaven. Now the King James Version here has fall from heaven. So if you might, you might want to look at your translation, see what you have there. I don't think any of your translations will have the word falling from heaven as though John saw this star falling. This word fallen here is really the best way to interpret the word here. Technically, this is what we call a perfect active participle. All that means is that this is an event that John is getting a chance to see that has already happened. This star has already fallen from heaven, and we know who that is. He's already fallen from heaven, and John's getting a chance to replay that and relive that in a moment of time. And that's the idea that is being presented here. And notice, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, the bottomless pit here, another, what this word actually means is an unfathomable deep. The abyss is another way this is referred to. You remember back there in Luke, Luke chapter 8, verse 31, if you want to jot that one down, and the time when Jesus came upon the man known as Legion. Legion is the man who was full of demons. And, and when Jesus confronted this man, the demons actually from within this man uh, interacted with the Lord and actually asked him to not send them into the what? Into the abyss. They didn't want to go back to the bottomless pit. They didn't want to go back to this unfathomable deep. And so what they asked the Lord to do was to send them where? Yeah, into pigs, into a herd of swine. Well, of course, they got the request, but they really didn't get all that they wanted. They, they got their initial request. And that's the same word there, the idea of the abyss, the bottomless pit. And, and one of the most difficult things about the book of Revelation to understand are things like this. It is that God... In his sovereignty and in his, and I'm not questioning him, I'm not questioning him at all, but just, just trying to, trying to wrap my little, my little mind around God's willingness to, to let the, these, these demons of hell to be released and wreak havoc on the earth for a space of five months. Now, one of the things that we know is that someday will be revealed to us is what we know as the mystery of iniquity and how God is able to use iniquity and evil forces. We even see that in the Old Testament times as God used people like the Chaldeans and the Assyrians to carry out His will on His own people. But it's one of the most difficult things for us to comprehend that God is going to actually allow these things to happen, and we see that in this trumpet. 
Notice verse verses seven through ten, and notice the the description of these that that come out. And, and before I get to that, notice verse six. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. That's the second time we've had that kind of phenomenon. Remember, I think it was last week where we had the guys who were praying to the mountains and the rocks to cover them and hide them, and it was an insane request. Well, here there are going to be people who are actually going to wish they could die. But for and again, in God's timing and in God's purpose and plan, He's not going to let them die. They're going to experience some pain and torment upon this earth for a period of time. Look at verse 7 through 10. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots and many horses running in the battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. Five months is the typical lifespan of a locust. And so even though these were not actual locusts, they have locust-type qualities and characteristics in that they devour and they hurt and they cause a lot of destruction. But notice these particular locusts do not have the ability or the freedom to hurt plant life because that's not really what demons do. They hurt people. And because they are not real locusts, that's why they're forbidden to hurt the plant life. But God certainly has a work for them. Notice again, or something I notice here, you just kind of see the different descriptions of these different folks here. And as we read through and read the, the different listings here, it, the tremendous messages and sounds of warfare here. And, and we almost sense kind of a hurt for John. John's trying to, in his own way, kind of come up with words to help us understand and help us visualize and, and hear even in our ears some of the things that he's seeing and these weapons of warfare are huge. And in three different places here, in verses 3, 5, and 10, we see the, the tremendous pain that is going to be inflicted on mankind as a result of these demons that have these locust-type, scorpion-type characteristics about them. Well, let's move on here. We've got a lot more to go. Notice verse 11. We're in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, his name has the name Apollyon. Now, the word Abaddon or Abaddon actually means destruction. The word Apollyon means destroyer. And here we have their leader depicted here in verse 11. And we see again, and we're going to have him and we're going to see him as we travel through our book together. Look at verse 12. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these. And then we have the sounding of the sixth trumpet and verse 13. And let's read verse 13 and 14. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Trumpet number six is woe number two, and it is the one-third of mankind are destroyed. Trumpet number, I gave you number five, didn't I? Created beings, did I give you that one? Make sure you got that one. Trumpet number five is woe number one over created beings, and then trumpet number six is woe number two, and one-third of mankind is destroyed. Now look what we have here. 
this sixth angel sounding, hearing this voice from the four horns of the golden altar, horns speak of power, the golden altar speak of God and God's power. And so we have, that's the imagery that is focused there. And notice verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now at the opening of the fourth seal, one-fourth of mankind alive on earth at that time was killed in a short period of time. Now we have a third of mankind being killed of those remaining. If you do the math, and depending on how many people are actually alive at the time, that's half of the population of the planet losing their lives in a short period of time, in less than seven year period of time, and tremendous holocaust that's about to happen on this earth. And you can, you can begin to appreciate why there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour, because somehow the inhabitants of heaven, and they can read too, they know and they knew and they know what's about to happen and there's this silence as they're going to be looking at this and of course we're going to be there and we'll experience that silence in heaven. And I, I don't know how much the inhabitants of heaven are able to look over the balcony of heaven and look down the earth. I, I, I don't know that. But maybe we will. I don't know that we'll want to. But we'll just, we'll have to leave that to the sovereignty and the providence of God to decide all that. Look at verse 16. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. And I heard the number of them. Now 200 million is a tremendous amount of people. When Xerxes invaded Greece, he had one and a half million troops with him. When we were in the Second World War, we had about 12 million troops under arms. 200 million man army. That's a tremendous amount of people. Many of the commentators that you'll read and study about that will, will reference the fact, and almost every one of them reference this fact, that back in 1965, the, the Red Guard of China boasted of having an army of 200 million under, under arms. I don't know how many they have under arms today. We can just kind of imagine this tremendous army that's going to be marshaled up and ready to do what is going to happen upon this earth. Let's just read on here. Verse 17. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. And those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. We already read that. And by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Okay, let's, let's pause here. Take a breath. There's a whole lot of information there. And you can just, again, you can sympathize with John as he is attempting to try to put this in print, what he's allowed to see. As I thought about that again this week, I thought about us, and I don't know how many of you all are Star Wars fans and like to watch the Star Wars episodes, but, you know, episodes four, five, and six pretty difficult 
to comprehend. Those were the ones that came out first. And then episodes 1, 2, and 3 came out later. And we can kind of begin to think about the ability and some kind of the, some of the artillery that, that's in those Star Wars episodes. And we kind of think, is that all that really happened? I mean, is that all that really possible for us, for the people to have lasers and, and lightsabers and all that kind of stuff? Well, as we can begin to find difficulty grasping the Star Wars artillery, John was having a hard time grasping this kind of military might that he's even writing about. But based on some of the military might that we know of in our day, and some of you have a greater insight, far greater insight than even I have, but we can begin to kind of appreciate what John is writing about here. And again, it's just a reminder of, of how rough things are going to be. But, but as I think about this, I want you to notice verses 20 and 21 because I really think of all the things that we might want to have cleared up for us and we want to know what all those signs and symbols mean. I think the real important part of this section that we're reading right now is verses 20 and 21. And the reason why I say that is with all this destruction and death and pain and turmoil going on in the world, the Bible tells us that the people alive in that day do not repent. They do not repent of their sorceries. They do not repent of their murderers and their witchcraft and all the things. And the point that I want us to grasp here is every now and then I, I witness to someone that, that their, their basic retort to me is this. I'm going to wait till the end. And when it gets really bad, then when I'm finished sowing my wild oats, when I'm finished living life and getting all out of life I can, then I'm going to give my life to Christ. And I want to tell you, it's not going to happen. The Bible tells us here, it's already told us before, and it's going to tell us again later on in the book, that even when things get bad and God is their only hope and their only answer, they don't turn to Him. They have this stubborn way about them. Now, some of our friends might say, well, they couldn't. It's past their day of grace, and that's, that's certainly very possible. But John lets us know here that even in the midst of all this death and destruction, notice it says here, the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, they do not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they do not repent of their murderers or their sorceries. Sorceries actually refers to magic arts, the kinds of, of drugs that are used for divination, drugs that are used even to produce healings or false healings. They don't even repent of those things or of their sexual immorality. Many times those drugs that are used in the sorceries actually lead people into sexual immorality, and that's another reason why they're so damaging and so deadly, or of their thefts. And so even in the end, they don't repent. And so the reminder of Scripture is today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart. Today, while you can still hear Him, receive Christ. Before we move on to our next section, I want us to pause a minute, catch your breath, and I want us to pray. And as I voice our prayer, I want you to, in your heart and in your mind, just think about those people that are on your prayer list. Or maybe they're not physically on a prayer list, but they're in your heart, they're on your mind, and you know they're lost. They might live nearby or live far away. It could be a, a person lives in your house. It could be someone that is a close relative or a distant relative, a co-worker, a friend. But I want to ask you, and, and you can even pray out loud as I pray out loud. It doesn't matter. You won't bother me at all if you want to do that. But as I voice our prayer, I want to ask you not just to sit there and listen to me. as I know that's hard to do to pray while somebody else is praying out loud. But as I'm praying, would you pray for that person? Maybe it's your brother or your sister, a mom or a dad, a son or a daughter, an uncle, an aunt, a grandparent. 
co-worker, friend. Would you pray for them as I pray out loud? Let's pray together, shall we? Father, as we come to you right now, we have embarked upon some very difficult days in our study. Difficult for us to comprehend, hard for us to receive, but we know that you are perfect. We know that you are sovereign, that you are right, that everything that you do is just and holy and good. And so, Father, we don't question any of this, but we do pray for those that we're thinking about even right now. Father, you know those individuals who need to be saved. You know those that we know that if they were to die tonight without Christ, they would be eternally lost. And Father, I pray that in your sovereignty and your grace, that Father, one more time you would pour out a sufficient measure of grace upon them that they might be saved. Father, give them the grace to believe and the faith to believe as it is talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. Father, I pray that as you... As the Lord tarries His return, and Father, these folks that we're thinking about, they would not take time for granted. They would not take life for granted and opportunities for granted. But Father, as You reveal Yourself one more time, would they fall on their knees and pray and ask You for salvation? Father, Your Word tells us that if we will confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts, that God has raised him from the dead, we can be saved. For with the heart one believes in the righteousness, with the mouth confession is made to salvation, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Father, I pray somewhere, somewhere in a life that we're thinking about and praying for even right now, somewhere somebody even right now is pausing and stopping with what they're doing and they're praying, inviting Christ into their life. I thank you, Father, for this great group that's assembled here tonight in our study time together, and I pray you would continue to give us illumination to see what we have here. For it is in Jesus' name that I pray.